0: Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously.
1: Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and grab a seat if you would. We're delighted you're here. My name is Mike. Welcome to our community, particularly if you're new or if you're online. Welcome. Oh, thank you to this very talented table and chair team. Well done, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, um, one of the things that we do um, every week is that we leave room at the end of the service uh, for people to kind of respond to what it is that God's doing or what it is they're hearing. That's better, Cam. That's better. Now, if you don't know Cam... Cam's got a backstory, all right, the size of Montana. The backstory is that Cam showed up the first day. First day Cam showed up. And he sits, what, right here or right there? And he sits in the front row with this. Okay? Do you see this? The Reformation Study Bible, ladies and gentlemen. Now, we all know that Bible size is related to the size of God's love for you. And so we could not help but comment all right so I didn't know it was his first Sunday so I bring him up to show off the Bible and he's like hey it's my first week and we're like oh we'll never see you again I'm sorry <laughs> Kim has returned but he usually he's been sitting in the back row lately and I've been giving him and I wonder why right I don't know why he would sit in the back row but welcome welcome home welcome home Kim anyway they make medication for this, I know. Um, nah. <laughs> so, anyway, one of the things that we do uh, that is super important to us at the end of the service is we, we leave room for us to bodily respond. And, and we do that because we're sort of cramped in here, we can only do that in a few ways. But we pray, we carry each other's burdens, we take communion, we give, um, all of those things kind of in stations around the room. And uh, there are people, there are pieces of paper at the stations. People will write down prayer requests. And my goodness, those are incredibly powerful. And this last week, they were just so heavy. So we didn't want to read any particulars, but we wanted to pray for the categories of things that our community is wrestling with. So we're going to do a call and response prayer. I'm going to read the petition, and then you're going to say, Lord, hear our prayer. All right, let's practice that together. Ready? Lord, hear our prayer. Mean it. Lord, hear our prayer. Ready one more time. Lord, hear our prayer. All right, so however you want to say that, that's how we're going to go. All right? Sarah, go ahead. For those who need provision, we ask that you would meet their need. Lord, hear our prayer. For those afflicted with cancer, We pray for healing and perseverance. Lord, hear our prayer. For those who fight addiction, we pray for wholeness and grace. Lord, hear our prayer. For those with hearts of stone, we pray that you would give them hearts of flesh. Lord, hear our prayer. For those who are angry and tempted to retaliate in anger, we ask for holy disruption to that pattern. Lord, hear our prayer. For those who are broken and lonely, we ask for community and comfort. Lord, hear our prayer. For those who are anxious and depressed, we ask for hope and relief. Lord, hear our prayer. For those who are tempted to self-harm, we ask that you would remind them of their worth. Lord, hear our prayer. And so, Father, we take a moment to recognize that the amount of pain that sits in this room is immeasurable. Lord, we come um, in honesty, just admitting our limitations, our weakness, our fallenness, our brokenness. The things we've done to ourselves, the things that we've done to others, the things that others have done to us have accumulated And for some, Lord, we carry a great burden. And so, Father, we pray that you would meet with us and draw near to the brokenhearted. Lord, we don't gather as some religious duty this morning or some checklist. Lord, we gather because we believe there's something that happens, that you dwell among your people when they gather corporately. And so we pray that we would hear your voice. In the name of Jesus, our Christ, everyone said. Amen, amen, thank you. So this morning we're gonna continue on. Uh, We've got uh, one more week, and then Kevin's gonna teach next week, and then Susie, on. we're doing a pre-Easter series, because as Betsy said, that is happening. So we're gonna end chapter five, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount today. And I just wanna give you and remind you of some context. Jesus announces the presence and availability of the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of heaven is a public social reality that um, people are invited to uh, enact loyalty towards. And Jesus is gonna demonstrate the, uh, the nature of his kingdom through healing in chapters, Matthew chapters eight and nine, and then also in teaching, Matthew five, six, and seven, through this thing we call the Sermon on the Mount that we're calling the upside down kingdom. Now, Jesus is in the, uh, towards the end, of illustrating the difference between the rightness of the scribes and Pharisees and the rightness and justice of the kingdom as Jesus comes as the Torah's definitive interpreter. He is revealing the heart of the Father. One of the things that was true about the rightness of the scribes and Pharisees was that it was focused on externals. It was enough just to not murder. But Jesus says, no, no, we, we in, in my kingdom, we deal with anger and contempt. The old rightness was, it's, not, not, it's just enough to not commit adultery of the body. But Jesus says, no, 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 we deal with coveting and adultery in the heart. It's not just enough to avoid God's name and oaths. We deal with using religious language to manipulate each other, and so on. Last week, we met... Something that was very true um, in the ancient world, even more so than today, but it still kind of echoes throughout our world. And it's called just the Law of reciprocity, Sarah, if you put that up. And it just simply meant you treat people the way they treat you. So if someone loves you, you love them. If they hate you, you hate them. If they give to you, only give to people who can repay. Honor those who can repay you in honoring you harm those who harm you, and Jesus introduced, the law of reciprocity has two sides to it. The one side is negative. If someone harms you, you have the right to harm them back. And Jesus, as we saw last week, introduces the idea of creative goodness. Instead of competing with evildoers and evil, we respond not as doormats or not passively, but as people who who are ingenious in, in offering creative goodness back for evil. And, that, and we, if this is all new, I would encourage you to listen to last week because it's the uh, walking the second mile, the turning the other cheek, all of those are much more uh, rich options than often they're portrayed as in American culture. So the negative part of the law of reciprocity is harm those who harm you, and Jesus says, no, you don't have to live by that. You can respond in creative goodness to those who harm you. The positive side of the law of reciprocity was love only those who love you. And Jesus, shockingly, is going to call that into question. So here we are, Matthew chapter 5, Cam. We're in verse 43, my friend. It may take you a while to turn through all those pages. For those whom God loves least, it's on the screens uh, for you. (laughs) I'm totally kidding, of course. Mm. All right, verse 43 You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than anyone else? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, people ask have been asking us recently, and and so we encourage questions in here. Kevin leads a conversation during the 11 o'clock service out there. We're adding text messaging if you wanna text in a question because some of you do not feel comfortable speaking in front of a bunch of people like this. So we encourage a lot of questions, and one of the questions we keep getting is, okay, how come I've never heard some of this stuff before? And a a short answer to that is, is simply this. The assumptions you make about the Bible will almost always guarantee the interpretation you end up with. So if you assume the Bible was written to 21st century American Christians, you will get one telling and interpretation of these stories. If you assume that Jesus was actually Jewish and was speaking to real Jewish people in first century Israel about Jewish concerns using Jewish imagery, then you get a completely different set of understandings. So as we've seen, as we've gone through these illustrations, Jesus just doesn't speak in like pithy aphorisms, in a vacuum. Jesus is always engaging in the Twitter conversations of the first century, right? There were all these debates. One of them, uh, was asked was consisted of the question, "Who is my neighbor?" Everyone agreed that "Love your neighbor was either the first or second most important commandment. But the question became, "Who is your neighbor?" Mr. Rogers would say, "Everybody." And Jesus ends up agreeing with Mr. Rogers, or vice versa i 'm not sure how that worked. <laughs> But for the rabbis of the day, there was legit debate. Jesus even gets asked, remember, before the parable of the Good Samaritan, and seeking to justify himself, the man said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Because there were different understandings of how far neighbor love went. Now, go ahead and put just that first verse up there. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, look at me for a second. Love and hate are not feeling words. Say it back to me. Love and hate are not feeling words. Love and hate are choice words. So if I love someone, I favor them or I select them. If I hate someone, I disfavor them and neglect them. Okay, so when Jesus comes and says, hey, you know, hate your... Parents. He's not talking about holding enmity towards your parents. He's saying, if you have to choose between following your parents or following me, choose me. This is so important. In the Bible, love is not something you fall in and out of. Love is not affection. Love is not an emotional response. Love is action that wills the good of another. All right? This is so important. So when Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. He's talking, he's stepping into this debate about how far does selection and favoring of neighbor go. Does it go to Samaritans? Does it go to Gentiles? Does it go to Romans? And there were two big rabbinical schools back in the day, Shammai and Hillel, and they would disagree. Some said it went all the way to Romans. Some said it ended at Gentiles. Some said it included Samaritans. Some said it didn't. Now, this debate was prompted by Leviticus 19. So, let's go to Leviticus 19, ladies and gentlemen. Woo is right. Yay, Leviticus. (laughs) I mean, if you were to check all of our devotional apps, this is the book that gets the most love. I have no doubt about it. (laughs) Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. Now here's the direct command to love your neighbor. Now, notice who in this verse is your neighbor. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your... So who's your neighbor? Your people. Who are your people? Fellow Jews, correct? So... And not only this, but if we back up a little bit in Leviticus 19, you see this same understanding. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. The implication is your neighbor is your people. Next. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Next. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. So slander among your people, endangering your neighbor's life. The implication is who's your neighbor? Your people. Next. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly. So who's your neighbor? Fellow Israelite, right? So from Leviticus, it was thought that in Torah, well, of course, love your neighbor, is just, it means just love your tribe, your people. And there were, uh, there were hints in other places about loving people who are beyond your tribe, like later on in Leviticus 19, it says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So there were hints that this sort of love was to extend beyond your people, but it was never explicitly stated, love your neighbor and your neighbor is everybody. So there were some Jews who simply held that we do not have to love Romans, we do not have to love Gentiles, we do not have to love Samaritans. Leviticus 19 only teaches we love fellow Israelites. And there were some texts that, that, see, that seemed to boast to God about hating God's enemies. So in Psalms, David will say, I hate your enemies, God, as if that were something to boast about. Or even in, in extra-biblical Jewish literature, there were, there were teachings about hating your enemies. So we think Jesus is picking up a common sort of understanding of this text in the culture. You've heard it said love your neighbor and hate your enemies, which means, hey, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, and your neighbor just means your fellow Israelite. Everyone else you hate, and remember, hate is not an affection word. It is a choice word. Makes sense so far? So that's the context that Jesus, Jesus, again, this was the big Twitter conversation of the first century. Who's my neighbor? Jesus steps into Leviticus 19. You've heard it said, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you... Love your enemies. Go ahead and put that up, Sarah, if you would. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, what has Jesus just done? What did he just do to Leviticus 19? Yeah, he he blew it up. There is no limit to who gets neighbor love and favoritism. Right, which, and for us, we're like, oh yeah, this is like a very famous teaching of Jesus. Yes, it's the least practiced teaching of Jesus, no question about it. And notice the word love here. Love, again, it's an action word, but the action word is the word agape. Now, I was raised in Christian culture where agape was like kumbaya. You know, agape was just a bunch of people sitting around with someone playing an acoustic guitar. Maybe we are doing s'mores. We're sharing testimonies. That's what agape was. You know what I mean? Like, some churches were named agape. Some coffee shops were named agape. It was just kind of like, it sounded like a grape. You know what I'm saying, Grants like a grape. And, and it, it just, it, it's lost all power or sting about what it, what it actually means. Agape is willing the good of another when it hurts you. That's what agape is. So agape is willing the good of an enemy, even if that's to your own detriment. Now, he's not talking about abuse. He's not talking about um, violence. He's not talking about those things. So set all of that aside. But we know exactly what this is like, right? I mean, in America, we're discipled to find human enemies to hate. I mean, that's what talk radio does. That's what social media is. Right. I mean, if you immerse yourself in Fox or CNN or whatever, it's just the airing of constant grievance. It just feeds your grievance mechanism. We are discipled to believe that this person over there is the enemy. And if they would just be dealt with, then the kingdom could move forward as I see it. Right? And Jesus calls this dramatically into question. <laughs> I tell you, love your enemies. So agape isn't warm feelings. I don't have. I don't imagine that he was telling the Jewish people, "Hey, have warm feelings towards the Romans." Right. So is he talking about warm feelings? Absolutely not. He's talking about enacted, um, an embodied action that is for the blessing and good of another. And the example he gives here is that of prayer. So, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you who are held in parallel. It's saying the same thing twice. So, if you're, if you're Israel, who are your enemies in the first century? Right. So, pray for the Romans. Bless the Romans. Love the Romans. Now, again, I mean, to us, it's like, well, of course, this is Jesus. This is what he does. But it's like, no, love the Taliban. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Someone's here. Represent. No. um, Pray for the Taliban and bless them. I mean, do you see how awful that sounds? Particularly if they were beheading Americans and Christians, you'd be like, there's no... No, absolutely not. So this isn't some theoretical hallmark, like, hey, guys, let's just have warm feelings for the people we cannot stand. This is, no, 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 the old rightness was, it's, it's fine to not choose and neglect your enemy. Now, the new rightness is we're not allowed to have enemies at all. Oh, my goodness. He, instead, he invites us to agape. Now, what's agape? Well, he says agape is the nature of God. He says, pray for, those, um, uh, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children, verse 45 if you would, Sarah, there you go, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And, and this is a minor point, but whenever... You are the children of something, that means you are like that something that you're the child of. So when James and John are called sons of thunder, that means they're like thunder. Loud, obnoxious, interrupting, impressive sometimes, (laughs) annoying most times, you know. So to be children of your father when you show agape is actually you are participating in the very nature of what God is like. When it says that God is love, God is agape. And here's what agape looks like from God's perspective. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. All right, so walk outside today. Complain about the cold, because it should not be cold. But the sun, yeah, it's shining on everybody. So Jesus is like, okay, does everyone benefit from the weather? Sure, that's the way God's love is. It is totally indiscriminate and independent of your behavior. That's the way your love should be is what he's inviting us into. And then he uses he goes from using the example of how God is to how tax collectors are, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. And he says, "Listen, if your agape is only towards people who love you, even tax collectors do that." That's nothing. There's nothing Christian about loving the people who are like you, who sound like you, who agree with you, who look like you. There's nothing Christian about that at all. What's Christian is loving your enemy. Is that affection? Nope. Are there time for appropriate boundaries? Yep. But it means action that wills their good. Oof. Then he says, therefore, be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this is where some of our friends will say, see, God's just telling you, like, you need Jesus because you can never live up to this. That's not what perfect means here. Perfect means complete. So in the context, he's saying love completely like your Father loves completely. How does the Father love? Indiscriminately. On the good and evil alike. There is no enemy in the kingdom. Now, that's the exegesis. Any questions on this so far? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Cam. Um,
0: could you go a little deeper on the, the part about the rain falling on the dust? It's like the interpretation I grew up with was like, oh, yeah, God loves
1: people who aren't Christians because, like, He gives them rain. Right? Right. rain, so like, oh, well, that's not much. It's rain. Right. Ah, so Camp's question is, for those of you online, hey, yeah, he gives them rain, but that's pretty flimsy, right, as far as God's gifts go. There are a lot of better ones. And I think, I think the illustration is meant to demonstrate the opposite point. Like, in context, the debate over neighbor was, how far does my favoritism go? The old rightness was it only goes to my fellow Israelite. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Your favor now goes as far as God's does. And an illustration of his favor in an agrarian society was weather. In an agrarian society, rain was massively important. You know what I mean? So this is actually, I think, demonstrating, look at how much God favors the good and evil alike. Great question, Cam. Anything else on this before we move on to how this is going to hurt us? Yes, Susie. First of all, happy birthday yesterday, ladies and gentlemen. Susie is the first person I've ever met who is aging backwards, and I have no idea how she does it. There's some thought maybe she's a vampire. We're, We're not sure. Okay, go ahead, Susie. Oh, a text, okay. Yes, what does it look like to, well, someone's good. We'll get to that, dear texter, in just a moment. Way to anticipate the direction of and flow of thought. Excellent, all right, anything else? Okay, perfect. You guys are amazing. Feel free to interrupt at any point in time. So, what are the implications for us? Well, I think they're pretty obvious. <laughs> First, an implication about Jesus that I think is worth pointing out. Number one, Jesus, it was thought the Messiah was going to come to do away with the enemies of Israel. And it's shocking that Jesus comes and forgives them, even as they nail him to a cross. And I know we all know that, that's the Good Friday story, but guys, please don't miss, this is what agape looked like. And Peter will point back to this. When he was mocked, he didn't respond. When he was executed, right? What are his words from the cross? His words from the cross are like, Father, forgive them. He arranges for the care of his mother. I mean, it's incredibly beautiful stuff. Secondly, um, the invitation, this is one of the places where Jesus really talks about what makes God, God. And it's the agape love that makes God, God. It's not that love is one of his attributes. It's that he is agape, self-sacrificial love. And that Jesus on the cross is what agape love looks like from God's perspective. That Jesus wasn't sent to the cross as punishment. It says for the joy set before him. This was one of those things where God demonstrates his great love in that while we were his enemies, Christ dies for us. And because of that, the universe has changed. There was a book written in 2011 by a fellow by the name of Rob Bell. It was called Love Wins, and it caused great consternation in the Christian circles that I was running in at that point. And it was about heaven and hell and universalism and all those sorts of things. But I, I was bummed. I didn't agree, by the way, with a lot of the book, but I was bummed. that that phrase, love wins, became associated with the book because love wins is exactly what Paul teaches. Like when he says that love never fails in 1 Corinthians 13, that's literally, love is incapable of failing. In the end, the only thing that remains are faith, hope, and agape love. And so there's a sense in which, my friends, the work of Jesus on the cross has reconfigured the way the universe works. So that we don 't have to return evil for evil, and that we can love the way that God invites us to, and when you 're doing that you 're participating in something that's a very you know, of god 's very own nature, so the invitation is for us to live indiscriminately. The problem for Americans is that we 're taught to love very discriminatively, if that's the opposite way of saying that right we, like we have very clear labels and boundaries for who we love and who we. Do not. And in fact, we've even been told that t- in order to love some people, you have to make sure you tell them you would disagree with them first. Right? Because if I love them indiscriminately, then they, they, maybe they think I approve of their life. The problem is there's none of that here. None. None. The, wa- the weather example is the compelling one. That's what your love is to look like. Now, of course, boundaries and of course, appropriate distance and all those things. Yes, yes, yes. But I'm just talking about the, the normal social relationships we engage in and the imaginations we have about who other people are. And we are discipled. See, and, and when Paul says, your enemy are the powers and the principalities, not flesh and blood, that simply means if it has flesh and blood, we fight for it, not against it. And so my friends, I don't know if you're, I, I just sit in this and go, oh my goodness. Like this is the most challenging teaching of Jesus. Because it is what it means to be, to be put to death to self, right? To, to carry our cross, this is what it looks like. That's why Jesus used that image. To be indiscriminate in our love. To not have to make people believe the same way. Manipulate them so that they believe the same way. Love people with an agenda. Nope, this is just like the weather. Whether you deserve it or not, I will the good. Now, to our texter, what does will the good mean? Well, the example he gives is what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I can attest, because I have enemies. They're in the state of Michigan. And, um, sorry, I'm an Ohio State fan. And, um, no. I may have symbolically given Michigan to Canada at one point in my life, but that's fine. No, I'm I'm teasing. Symbolically, yes. Um, No, no, there have been people who have so hurt me and so wounded me and said things about me or whatever, and I'm infuriated and flooded with the desire to retaliate and to harm back. And it drags. it's like dragging my feet to go before God and pray blessing by name over those people. And when I do that, something happens. Not immediately, it's not fun, it's an act of the will, God doesn't give me warm fuzzies, but somehow the poison gets extracted little by little And at some point, after months, I'm able to genuinely mean, God, would you bless them? So if that's all we do, that's a start. So you're sitting there watching the news, and here comes a public figure you can't stand. Joe. Donald. And instead of just doing the thing and the thing and the thing, we just say, God, I pray that you bless this person with wisdom and help me to see them as an image-bearer. That's it. And you're like, yeah, I can't, I can't do that, right? Because it's so ingrained the opposite way. But then, you, but then you do things like this, right? You apologize to people even when you don't think you did anything wrong. Or you stay silent when it'd be much easier to respond. Or you bless people with words of affirmation even though, you know, you get nothing back. So friends, I I don't know how this sits with you. It's super heavy to me because this just goes against everything. And that's the point, right? This is the upside down kingdom. It's like, um, do you guys remember the, the show Seinfeld? Some of you? Cam? Okay, Gen Z, not sure, but Seinfeld. There was, a character named, there was a character there named George Costanza. And there was one whole episode, George was just a lovable loser. And there was one episode that showed when George did the opposite of every instinct he naturally had, his life flourished. And so we want to invite us into George Costanza discipleship. Whatever is normal for human life, whatever normal instinct we have, let us all call that into question and do the absolute reverse. Susie, there's a texter question? Yeah, there's a few. Okay. You wanna, why don't you grab the mic so people can hear it? And then we'll, and then we'll close with communion.
0: Okay. This one, uh, okay. So does that mean us eternal of foreign war does not show God's love? And then there was another um
1: could you say that again i i, yeah, I, I didn't I really I understand, understand the
0: way it was worded yeah but somebody else i'm guessing this is in the same line of thinking yeah practically speaking what does it mean to will the good for someone like putin
1: yes fantastic it, and, and it's interesting because they're
0: oh sorry Veterans of foreign war did not show God's love. Does that mean veterans of foreign war did not show God's love? So, we're talking about war. Yeah. Both times.
1: All right. I'm not sure I understand exactly, but that's not going to stop me.
0: <laughs> well, I think somebody somebody who fought in a war.
1: Oh, somebody who fought yeah, in a war. a
0: veteran of foreign war. Does that oh, mean that did not show God's love?
1: Oh my word. Okay. Yeah, seriously. First of all, first of all, if, if you're here or you're online and you're a veteran, I have no idea what it is that you've been through. I have no possible way to understand what it is that you've seen and experienced. And so I would imagine all this theory sounds wonderful until you get into a, an instance where someone's trying to kill you. And how do you respond? I, so I don't, I don't presume To know anything about how God sees that. I do know theologically there are massive amounts of conversations around whether war is ever just or not, and whether killing is different than murder. And we we could get into that, no question about it. Um, uh, But I don't know that, I mean, to to get into it would take us massively. I mean, it it would be 10, 20 minutes easy there's a book that Preston Sprinkle wrote. That's his name, Preston Sprinkle. And he wrote a book called "Fight." Just that title. And it is it is looking at the the issue of nonviolence in the Bible. Was Jesus a pacifist? Is uh, you know Yahweh doesn't seem to be. Jesus though seems to interrupt that sort of pattern. And so, how do we understand all of that? I mean, the, but, so. I would recommend to start there, or we could do a whole teaching on it. Um, How do we understand um, war? I think the Bible teaches that God never does evil, ever. So I don't attribute things like war or cancer to God at all. I think that is not God's will for human life. I think the invitation of God for us is to imitate his love. The problem is in, in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament law, we see God dealing in the real muck of human life, not just the ideal. And so, I can't imagine if we were invaded, how I would respond to defend my home, my family, if someone broke into our house, all of those things I'm still very much on process in. This is not my view, or this is not Journey's view. My, my view is that uh, I think violence is always wrong and not God's will, but sometimes in a fallen world it's necessary to restrain evil. So that's my personal take, and I'm so up in the air on that. Great, great, man, great question. What if,
0: what if <laughs> thank you. <laughs> what if you can love people but you have a hard time with loving yourself?
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, I can say I've been in therapy three rounds and I'm still working on that myself. Um, for, me, for me personally, understanding um, that Christian is an identity before it's a set of behaviors has been really important. When, when, when Paul in Ephesians takes three chapters to affirm, here's your identity in Christ, and then he says, Let us live up to the calling you've already received. That's like learning to be married. You get married before you know what it is to be a husband or wife. Married people, would you agree? And then the rest of your married life is learning to be what's already true of you. And so I think those of us who struggle with self-worth or self-image, we're in the middle of that very normal process of having things said about us that haven't pierced the internal world yet. Why? Because our cultural conditioning in the old fle- in our old flesh, your family of origin, coaches, whatever it is, those things get in there and are resilient. And so I think immersion in the scriptures and prayer, I think participation in a church, I think I find a good therapist, I think spiritual direction, all of those are healthy practices for those of us who are still on the road of believing the things that Jesus and Paul say that are true about us, so I think that is a wonderful question
0: okay there's one more one and more just a reminder that Kevin is leading a, the last week of the oh yes of the um, questions and processing time at the eleven so if you have more questions, that's a great space but great um, can you briefly speak to how to set healthy boundaries while showing agape love toward enemies? Oh,
1: absolutely well. All right, I should not never say it that confidently. <laughs> um, I was just, I was thinking, I was immediately thinking, am I a therapist? No, I am not, so please take all of this with a grain of salt. First of all, I think Jesus' teaching assumes the need to do that, okay? So I think the need for healthy boundaries is super, super important. Jesus is not inviting us to be harmed in order to love people. When I say we love others to our detriment, I mean things like allowing another to get praised when we think we deserve it. Not backstabbing somebody when we have the opportunity to gossip about them. That, that feels like a small death to us, right? That, those are the things I'm talking about. For me, um, boundaries, we have this phrase we use in my house called polite but distant. And agape means, I don't harm if I have the opportunity to harm, and if I have the opportunity to do good, I do. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily pursuing, in ways that violate those boundaries, opportunities that could put me at risk. Does that make sense? That's a
0: lot of what last week was too.
1: Absolutely a lot of it. The creative goodness does not mean we're doormats or that we're staying in situations that are harmful for the sake of loving our enemy. No, 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 no. Jesus is never inviting you to stay in situations where you're being harmed. So take those situations off the table and let's just talk about normal workplace school life where we can't stand other people and, and you know, maliciously talk about them or backstab them at any time or make sure that other people know how awful they are. There's an instance of loving your enemy. Right? Or let, let's, take it, let's take it a step further to say, um, well, you have the opportunity to do something nice for somebody who can't repay you. Yeah, now that's like the Father in Heaven. Right? Because old reciprocities only do those good things for people who can repay. No, no, no. The new rightness and justice of Jesus is doing those for people who cannot.
0: Do you have one more?
1: Okay. Hey, you're running. Susie, um, you have... The Text phone so which, as many as you want to do.
0: which takes precedence, loving our own or loving enemies, if we are supposed to embody the sacrifice of Jesus in loving those that are far from us and even our enemies, at what cost is it possible to do damage then to others, unloving activity in parentheses as we seek to love our enemies it becomes easier to numb ourselves to any greater sacrificial move of love when we are responsible for others
1: oh my goodness yes what wonderful okay that read the first part of that question again just the first sentence
0: which takes precedence loving our own or loving enemies
1: now what does that sound like who's my neighbor I mean that's the exact question that is the, that's why I was smiling, like, perfect, you nailed it. And the Jews were split on this, because remember, they were held captive by a terrorist organization, the Roman army. So, guys, yes, there are loopholes, but few. And I'm not saying the questioner is asking for loopholes, not at all. Of course, we, and even, um, you know, Timothy will say things like, Uh, If you do not provide for your own family, you are worse than an unbeliever. I mean, yes, of course. The issue is getting rid of the enemy mechanism in our brains altogether. Now, I do have fidelity to my family that trumps fidelity to people in other situations. So if I'm putting my family at risk in order to love another, I might reconsider that option. But, and I think this was hinted at, often I can use my love of family as a way to not love an enemy or love another, right? And, and, and we just see this all the time where in, um, at least in the, some of the Christian circles I run in, love of family can get you out of anything, any obligation. And so we want to both sides that a little bit. On the one hand, we want to say, no, 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 of course, don't put your family in jeopardy if... If, um, no, that's not what I got by love looks like, but there's also, a, at least for me, I don't know about you, but an excuse thing that can come up too, where I can so elevate my fidelity to my family that I simply will not love anyone beyond that, and that is precisely the issue Jesus is addressing. Good Lord. All right, I'm done. I'm going home. I'm not, we're not doing 11 o'clock service. Brothers and sisters, look, it is the greatest joy of my life to have these sorts of conversations with you. You just have no idea how great it is. Don't put your coat on, Kim. We're not leaving. It is not cold in here, Kim. It is not cold. It is not cold. Do you see this? And that was me sitting. And if you're provoked right now, perfect. That's what Jesus is doing, to get us out of the old ruts, to invite us into George Costanza-ness, to question everything that is just the normal reaction. Yes, may there be a pause. Every time we just go to do what's automatic, he's calling automatic into question. And the invitation is that this isn't burdensome, it's actually liberating. And for some of us, we just don't buy that that's true. And that's part of discipleship too. So today we want to do something really concrete, and this will not shock you. I would like for each and every one of us to go grab a piece of paper, write down the name of an enemy, and pray for them. It could be a group of people. It could be someone at work. It could be someone sitting next to you. (laughs) I mean, it could be anything. You don't have to write last names or identifying features. You could just write, You know, God, You know, And then, so I want you to grab a piece of paper, write a name, and then grab communion and come back to your seat. Leave the piece of paper there. And then I want you to take communion, asking God to love, again, not affection, but to love that person the way that God has demonstrated his love towards us. And I know it sounds absolutely ridiculous, and for some that'll be super hard. Pick a lesser enemy then. But we all got them. So, does that make sense? You guys are amazing, really. It's an honor to be a part of this community. This is the kind of stuff we'd rather just skip over, but it is the core of human life. And so, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God, we pray that you would give us grace this morning just to even with the barest of intention lift up to you the name of our enemies and to pray blessing over them. May you rid us of the poison and help us to refurbish the enemy-making machines of our culture so that we are people who gradually love indiscriminately like the Father. Lord, we need you to, to help. This is, this is way too big for us. But this morning, God, we just open ourselves up the possibility that this is what it looks like to be fully human. And for those who are deeply wounded by another and super conflicted, God, draw near to them that this is not being reconciled with this person. This is not opening yourself up to further harm with this person. This is dealing with the stuff that corrodes our inner world. So to that end, Jesus, would you bless us and receive us now. In the name of our Christ, amen.